0: Welcome back to living on a changing planet My name is Carter Powis I'm a climate scientist and economist from Toronto, Canada and I am joined today as always by my co-host Patrick who is a clinical psychologist from Oxford England. Patrick how are you doing today?
1: I'm very well and um, I this is a, this is a different one today. I'm genuinely uh, excited and I'm not just there's no hyperbole there.
0: Well, for our listeners, the reason Patrick and I are so excited is almost two years ago, we sat down to sketch out what we wanted to achieve with this podcast and what conversations we wanted to have in service of that goal. One of the conversations we really wanted to have, but weren't sure if it was going to be possible, was to sit down with a leader or executive within the fossil fuel industry who recognized climate change as a serious problem and was genuinely trying to change the industry from the inside. We worked on this concept for almost two years, and as a result, we are very pleased to be welcoming Vicky Holub to the show today. If you're not familiar with Vicky, she is the chief executive officer and president of Occidental Petroleum, which is one of the world's largest fossil fuel companies. Now, before we welcome Vicky to the show and start our conversation, I know that many of our listeners are going to be critical of our decision to invite a false fuel executive onto the show. So I'd like to say a couple of things about that before the episode starts. Firstly, and most importantly, I want to explain why we thought this conversation was important. In my opinion, there is only two groups of people when it comes to climate change those who recognize it as a serious problem and who are trying to take action, and those who do not. When we think about this group of people who recognize it as a problem and are trying to take action, that is not a homogenous group. There are many different types of people trying to take action in many different ways. And believe it or not, there is a strong cohort of people working in highly emissive industries like oil and gas production, power production, uh, mining, heavy industry, etc., who want to change these industries, want these industries to decarbonize as quickly as possible, and the way that they are trying to achieve that is to affect change from the inside. Now, being one of these people is often extremely difficult and lonely because not only do you face criticism from within inside the industry and organization you're trying to change, you often also face criticism from outside the industry, so it can feel like you have no allies. If we're serious about decarbonizing the global economy as quickly as possible, in addition to the external pressures that are already being applied, so protests, activist shareholder resolutions, etc., we also need people working inside these organizations who are trying to steer the ship towards a zero-carbon future. It's not to say that this is the right path or the only path, but that the economy will move faster if we take an all-of-the-above approach. And so what we're hoping to achieve with this episode is to demonstrate that there are multiple ways to engage with the fossil fuel industry. One of which is to find people within the industry who do care about climate and are trying to make a change and to work with them collaboratively. Now, this doesn't mean agree with everything they say or don't challenge whether they are moving quickly enough, but it does mean having empathy for their situation and finding common ground that you can build a relationship on. We're hoping through this conversation with Vicky, we'll be able to help uh, people who are extremely concerned about climate change generate a little bit of empathy for those who work for highly emissive industries and who want to change. Because often they are grouped in with everyone else in those industries and demonized, which discourages people from taking this path. And we need people working within fossil fuel companies and utility companies to help drive decarbonization from the inside. If there are not people doing that, we will not achieve our climate targets. Okay, there are two more things that I wanna say before we welcome Vicky. The first is that everybody on this call recognizes that the fossil fuel industry writ large has done some pretty awful things relating to climate change, ranging from burying good science to actively spreading misinformation, to lobbying against policies that would help us make important progress. The fact that we're recording this episode in no way uh, should be construed as us supporting or justifying or condoning any of those actions. They're absolutely wrong. It is simply my contention or our contention that one, those things have been addressed elsewhere at length in a much better way than we can do here in an hour. And secondly, as we just talked about, the focus of our episode is trying to figure out how to move forward and solve this problem as quickly as possible. That's not to say that these past wrongs don't need to be litigated elsewhere, but it is not the purpose of this conversation. Finally, Whether you are someone who is skeptical about the importance of climate change or someone who is extremely concerned about climate change, I would strongly suggest you listen to the full episode, including the outro, before you make any judgments about its content. So with this said, it is finally time to welcome Vicky to the show. Vicky, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, frankly, I think it's, uh, it's very brave of you to have this discussion in a, uh, in a public setting because it is very personal in nature. So thank you again for taking the time.
1: We were saying before the show that we were, we had a a pretty firm suspicion this might be the first time that a psychologist, a climate scientist and a a fossil fuel executive have sat down um, together in a public, in a public setting and had a conversation. So um it's i think it's it's it's, it's uh, certainly new ground for me um i'm delighted as well that you're able to join us vicky thank you
2: thank you and i appreciate the opportunity to talk about this and to, and to talk about it in a more personal way where we can hopefully allow others to to see who we really are as as um as leaders of, of Occidental.
0: let's let's kick off with the first question we ask all of our guests this question to start vicky which is could you tell us the story of how you first learned about climate change, and how that process made you feel?
2: I would say that I can't look back and tell you a specific uh day or not even month or year i think for for myself and and some of my colleagues here in Occidental, as we were developing our 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 plans for the future back you know it, and then doing strategy planning we um we started to realize that that the climate was changing and there were models that actually showed this and that that prior models actually had predicted things that that were coming true and to me climate science is is such a a challenging thing to to not only understand but to try to do forecast so to having uh, now looked back at Models that were developed as as early as the first one back in 1979, and to see that 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 data has has actually come true and happened, and so it, to me it it wasn't a single day; it was the building of information and the building of the credibility of the models and the credibility of the people developing the models, and seeing it happen in real time. Storms getting worse and different weather patterns changing and uh and certainly from a personal standpoint i live on galveston island and developed have developed a network of friends I wasn't born on the island island and if, if you're not born on the island you're considered kind of a different person and so so i finally kind of broke into the born on the island group and heard their stories about how things were so different today than they used to be and how More severe, the storms seem to be getting more more frequent and all of that. And then seeing my friends who have um, businesses in downtown Galveston and seeing those businesses every time a hurricane comes, uh, they get flooded. Even though a seawall was built to protect them, now it's not enough to protect them from the the hurricanes and, and not enough to protect their businesses. And then you see in other places the storm's so severe that there's so much loss of life to me. That's that's so compelling. I don't know how anyone could today not believe that the climate is changing.
1: This has this has come up actually several times over the course of this of this uh, the season and the conversations we've had is how reliable those early models, uh, how accurate sorry those those early models turned out turned out to be. Um, that's that, that's a, an idea that's come up time and time again. The more conversations we've we've had, so. I mean, what already, I'm, I'm already taken with is is how, and I really appreciate your kind of candor and honesty about this, you're already seeing and connecting with this, not as a scientific issue, not as a um, uh, as a financial issue necessarily or a business issue. You're, you're, you're thinking about your friends and your neighbours and your local community and how the changes they're noticing and the effects it's having. So I imagine this is probably going to influence your answer to the next question which is your emotional relationship to climate change as an idea must have evolved over time as well to become possibly less of a future issue um, and, and uh, that's distant in terms of time but also distant in terms of place uh, perhaps getting closer and nearer in, in many aspects for you i i don't know but what's that that side of the journey been like for you how is this what you are describing now about Galveston Island and, and the local community? What kind of what kind of emotional responses does that kind of lead you to to experience? And, and are those shared in the community as well? Because obviously, when we're talking about uh, Texas here, which obviously traditionally you would think of as being a a, a region, a part of the world where uh, climate concern wouldn't necessarily have been on the for- forefront of their minds for you know for the past decades. Is, is your emotional relationship to the issue changing? And, and is that you being, are you seeing that in the community around you as well?
2: Certainly mine has changed. And, uh, and I have seen, uh, uh, you're, you're absolutely right, Patrick, that uh, Texans have never been um, ready and willing to uh, to believe that, that climate change was happening. Uh, and uh, we've had in the state of Texas a lot of deniers about climate change. However, those that are in the impact areas, uh, it's, it's all too real to them. And so my friends, especially as I mentioned, the Born on the Island guys who a- have actually stayed through some of the hurricanes, my next door neighbors actually went through Hurricane Ike that hit Galveston. Now they too have said they're different now and, uh, and they don't want to be a part of another hurricane. They'd gone through, they'd never evacuated from Galveston until now that what's Ike went through and then Harvey after that, uh, they've decided they're not going to stay again for the next one um, because they're, they're just too afraid. And so even and I think that's that really is the is the most reliable voice to hear someone say, well, I'm not going to stay again because I think it could be worse next time. And so those actions speak so much louder than words. People can say that they believe in it. But when you see people actually changing their behaviors and changing what they do uh, because of it, then you know that people are are really getting it, and especially those that are in those kind of areas. and And to me, it's um, it's it's a bit emotional to me because I believe it will ultimately change what Galveston is. Galveston has always been a place where people would ride things out. People love the island; they wouldn't leave the island for anything. Um, and the businesses would always come back, would always be there. But but if it's going to be so frequent, that's going to have to change.
0: Speaking about some of the specific emotions we've heard a lot of other people mention, we've heard a lot of talk about anxiety. Um, we've heard talk about grief, uh, anger, despair in some cases. And I'm curious whether you associate with any of those emotions, particularly because In addition to the fact that you're a human being living on a warming planet, you're also responsible for a very large company, which needs to really reinvent the way it does business over the coming decades um, at a pace that is somewhat historically unprecedented. Um, So it it seems like there are sort of multiple very large pressures on your shoulders. And and, yeah, I'm curious what sort of emotions arise from that.
2: Well, certainly... um Grief for those that that are most impacted, and um, and a lot of concern about um, and anxiety around trying to make sure that our message is gets out there and is received. Because I do believe uh, that we have the opportunity to be a leader in helping our industry move toward mitigation of climate change. So my there's there's grief, there's anxiety about. Um, what the next storms will do um, and there's there's also the frustration around trying to move faster but but feeling a bit constrained in our ability to do that because of uh, the fact that we we can build that those cross industry um, and, and cross segment um, relationships that will help us to be able to accelerate what we're doing um, so so that frustration, all those combined, do create some anxiety. But but what I try to do is I try to channel my emotions, and I and I feel like emotions are are so they can be either uh, inspirational and and motivational to drive you, or they can or they can kind of drain your energy and and get you to a point where you can't act at the level that you need to. So, what I'm trying to do is is channel my emotions more gratitude that I'm in a position with a company that's committed to make a difference. Uh, gratitude for that ability, and also the um the opportunity to make that change and to to drive toward trying to get our message out, trying to be more open. and And part of the reason I appreciate this conversation so much is I've heard people saying things about what we're doing. Uh, saying that uh, that we're greenwashing and and that we're not really serious about what we're doing, I hear those comments, and uh, and it frustrates me because I know if they could come under the tent with us, if they could be with, here with us on a daily basis, they would they would see that what we're doing is very genuine. Now, what we're doing is also, as you said earlier, it's a transformation of our business. It's becoming a company that that's very focused on not only mitigating our our own carbon footprint, but helping others to mitigate theirs too. So we're trying to move to a place where we're helping ourselves, we're helping others, and in in that, we're helping the planet. And some people say, yeah, but you're going to try to make money with that. Um, The reality is what we're doing has to be sustainable. It has to, if we don't have the funds to make it sustainable, then it's not going to get done because doing what we're doing, building the first uh, direct air capture facility at the scale that we're doing it, if we can do these, we need to build a thousand of these to to build in the part of the model that requires CO2 uh, to be reduced from the atmosphere. So it's going to take a thousand of these. So we got a lot to to build from the one that we're working on right now. So my frustration is that if people could really be come into our business uh, get to know us as people, they would understand that this is all real. And it's it's something that that we have to do, but we have to make it sustainable to make a difference.
0: Vicky, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've had the chance in my career to work with a number of executives. And I also have a close family member who works in executive search. And as a result of conversations with him, as well as my own experience, one of the things I've discovered about the CEO position is that it can be a very lonely existence. Uh, not only because the people you most frequently interact with are your subordinates who you're responsible for leading. Uh, and so some types of conversations are, you know, inappropriate to have with them, but also you don't really have a, a clear peer group because your peers are most often your competitors. Uh, and so it, I don't know if this if if you agree, um, but I've I've heard this or seen this reflected by executives in other industries, and I have to imagine it's it's also true in the fossil fuel industry. And I'm curious, does that make it more difficult to stay resilient?
2: Yeah, I would say that you're um, that you're exactly right. That being in this position, there there really isn't anyone that that you can talk to that knows what you need them to know (laughs) to be able to help you because um, my direct reports, uh, all of whom I have tremendous respect for, it's, um, we clearly, I can't talk to them. Um, It's, it's most often inappropriate for me to do that. And, and so, but they understand the issues and they understand what we're going through. So they would be perfect people to be able to help. But, but with some things, it's just, is something that that I really can't talk to anybody about. And um what what's helped me though is to is to have an an amazing family support system. Um you know, first of all, um my my husband is incredible. And uh you know, I have this 45 minute drive into uh to the office from Galveston. Going home it takes me about an hour and 15 minutes. So my husband always knows that if the phone rings from the time I've left the office and before I get home, it's because I'm call, calling to vent about something or or to to whine about something or to to get his his take on on something that's happening with me. And so he's he's a good sounding board for that for when I need to vent. And he knows the industry fairly well, so he's been a help. My brother is a huge help because my brother just tries to make sure that he distracts me. For at least some of the time to get my, my focus on other things. And then, and then being on the water and the water is something that's really calming to me. And, you know, some people like the mountains. Uh, I like the water and, uh, that's been a big help when, when I really am, am most anxious or frustrated or, um, are, are just feeling a little bit down. That's helpful. But with respect to being able to, discuss the the key issues sometimes it's we have the sometimes we have issues that we can't discuss with others and and that that is what makes it um i think a pretty lonely position at times depending on on what's going on
1: well as you were talking vicky about um uh some of the kind of the frequent players in terms of the emotions that uh that you experience in response to all of this and. Um, the anxiety and and the sense of concern for the community Um, and and, and as well, some of the frustration around the the pace of change, not being quick enough around you. I was sort of, I was sitting there and I was thinking, and, 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 and as well, some of the solutions you talked about in terms of how you, how you manage that connecting with family, connecting with the natural world. I was sitting there thinking, well, I could almost be sitting down having a conversation with a climate activist, you know, in the sense of, in the sense of kind of actually the, we've heard we've heard climate activists saying very similar things, and it almost for a second there it sounded like you were describing what we would consider uh climate anxiety uh, or you know or sort of ecological grief or these these kind of terms and phrases and ideas that have really been central to this to this podcast, which is i don't know if if that's a surprise for me or not i don't know if that's a surprise for you or not, but it sounds like you've you've obviously this isn't the first time you've confronted, if you like, your your emotional journey with all of this. It sounds like you've you've given this some clearly some thought over the years. Um, do you, are you familiar with the term climate anxiety? And is this is this something that you've you know it's uh, if you have come across that term? Is that something that you think actually? Yeah, that does that resonates for me a little bit.
2: I have heard it, and I've heard that um, that a oh, climate anxi- anxiety I've heard is impacting a lot of our our younger people and. Uh, um, especially youth coming up today, uh, even even some of our employees, I think, have the earlier career uh, people have gone through climate anxiety because they're you know they're they're concerned about their children and 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 having children. Some haven't even had children yet, and, and they're they're going through the process of trying to figure out: Do I want to have children? How bad is this going to be? And, and what can I do to ensure that if I have children, that they can have. At least as good a life or better life than than what I have, and so I hear those kind of things coming from uh, from our organiz- organization. and And the good thing is that um, the positive part of what we're, we're doing is it does give our employees something to be proud about, and something to commit to, and a reason to believe that that we will find a solution to this and that we will make a difference. And actually, that's become a little bit of a cr- recruiting uh, advantage for us and differentiates us from some of the other oil and gas companies is that we do have a plan. And when we don't just have a plan, uh, we're not just talking about things. We're actually doing things and and um, executing on the plan that we put in place. and And I think that has relieved actually some of the anxiety of of our own employees who recognize that there is a way for us to uh, to deliver and to help the world, and uh, if others will join in with us, then we can accelerate that. And so there there is a solution to this.
0: This uh, all of this last conversation, from talking about the the specifics of what being a CEO is like to your emotional response, leads really nicely into the next question, which is, what do you find most challenging about communicating? How you feel about climate change and why?
2: It's just that people give us no credibility. If you're a CEO of an oil and gas company, <laughs> automatically, with a lot of people, your credibility goes way down. And and it was it was uh, I was a little bit frustrated at uh, COP 26 when I went over there and was trying to talk to people, and and finally I had to say, why do you not think that I care about the climate? Because I do care, but people automatically assume that we fall into the bucket of of years ago where where people didn't care and, and people didn't believe. But now I, I can say that being a part of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which is now 12 companies who are committed to, uh, to not just putting pressure on each other to do better around our own operations and our own plans and strategies, but to also imbe- invest in technologies that will advance um, Ideas to to help mitigate climate change. Being a part of that and being behind the uh, the closed doors and hearing the commitment, the genuine commitment from CEOs who who like me are are really wanting to make a difference. I would use Ben Ben Baird, who just recently retired from Shell, as a as a great example. And he was attacked on stage um, right around COP because of some of the things that that he was saying, but Behind the scenes, he was he's he's a big advocate for doing all we can in our industry and actually led OGCI for a while. and he's he's very genuine. There are a lot of CEOs in our industry that are that are genuine that are pushing things to to happen. Um, and so our frustration, my frustration especially, is that that again, and as I said earlier, unless people really get to know us, um they they shouldn't just assume. That we're not that we're not trying to do the right thing.
0: Something you said, Vicky, very early on in this episode, when we were talking about your your emotions, um, you talked about this idea of frustration with the rate of change, the pace of change, and what was possible. And I think this is primarily the the number one emotion that people that are sort of upset with oil and gas firms also feel. It's, it's, it's a uniting um, a uniting feeling, and so. You know th- the last question we'd prepared for you is you know how can people who are concerned about climate change more productively engage with people like you and I would love to get your your thoughts on that but I would also like to add to that a part B picking up on something you said which is you feel frustrated because I'm trying to remember the exact wording something like you aren't able to build the the cross industry partnerships that you need to speed up and I would love it if in addition to to just speaking about how in general people Concerned about climate change can better work with you. What are those things that are holding you back, and how can those happen more effectively?
2: It's it's really hard for us to get other industries to even sit down and talk to us. Um, it's changing now for us because we're we're building this this um, strategy and this this uh, technology that's going to help others become carbon neutral. So I would, you know, I, I would certainly say that now we are starting to get companies to call us who who have a carbon footprint tech companies who have data centers who who use an enormous amount of electricity um those companies are starting to call us they're very interested now in trying to figure out how do they achieve their carbon neutrality so it's starting to happen um but it didn't wasn't happening in a big way before we started building building the technology and and it's almost like um like the movie, build it and they will come. <laughs> so we haven't completed the, the construction of it yet, but, but people know that we're committed and that, um, we've already started construction. So we're not going to stop it now. We've started. We'll have our first facility online by, by middle of uh, 2025. So just that action has, um, has helped to start those conversations to happen. And so. Now we're getting calls about, uh, again, tech companies, airlines. Um, we we already uh, signed a contract to sell carbon reduction credits to uh, Airbus. Uh, the Houston Astros, the uh, uh, Houston Texans sports um, organizations are starting to sign up to offset their travel. Uh, so uh, we've, we've had calls from other industries. So it's starting to, to happen for us. Um, but, but now the challenge is that, um, that when we sign up people, uh, they, they have a concern that we're an oil and gas company. So, so it's, it's like they come in and they kind of talk to us a little bit initially, but, but then it it takes a very long time for them to, to kind of feel comfortable that we are who we are. And, but, but I think even that is even the word is starting to spread among others that, that we are genuine in what we're trying to do and we're we're in a position to to do it on a large scale and committed to make it happen. Um but but some of the big organizations around the world haven't been uh as successful as I believe they should be in, in putting industry together to make it happen. I and the example I would use is the uh the the uh, CEO roundtable uh, the CEO uh, business Council here in the United States well what have they done to to build those those collaborations and to make it happen in a way that really helps to drive the technology it's not happening there and and those are the kind of organizations that have CEOs uh, from all sorts of industries that's where you could you could start to build those relationships and make it in and build the commitments to make it happen. Um I would say that the International Business Council was was recently uh, led by Brian Monahan they they have started that effort internationally. Uh so that effort is beginning but it's in early stages now but but i feel really encouraged that that's going to be a place where we could start making that happen on a larger scale and faster. Um but that everybody's kind of lagging here, and uh, I always felt like in history, if you go back and when you look at the times when never were when we were facing a crisis, it's crises in the past have always seemed to pull us all together, and and we would we would forget we were uh, we were one religion or a different religion. We would forget what our background was, uh, where we were from in the United States. Uh, what our, our race was, whether what our ethnicity was, when there was a crisis, we would all come together. But now it's it's kind of surprising to me that we have the biggest biggest crisis that's facing the world today, and we can't we can't forget that or or overlook the fact that we have you know you you happen to need to deal with an oil company to make direct air capture happen in a big way, and um, so. It, it kinda leads me to believe that that I think some of us in the oil and gas industry know what we need to do, want to get it done and want to accelerate it. But it leads me to wonder how many CEOs of other industries truly believe that that our our globe, our world is at risk due to climate change. How many really believe that? Because if they really believed that, they should be today, not just talking about setting goals for twenty fifty but putting in place plans to make sure the technology is developed, to make sure it happens so that they have a way to, to get
0: there. If I can, I'm going to, I'm going to, there's a great answer. I'm going to try and um, ask the same question with a slightly different phrasing. This is something that sometimes we do and we find it provokes interesting thoughts. And then, um, and then I'll turn it over. Okay. I'll turn it over to. Pa-
2: Sometimes people do that to me. They're telling me I didn't answer their question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you, you, you did. There's just, I think, more to it that I would love to capture. And then, um, and then I'll turn it over to Patrick if there's any last questions to to wrap up because I know we're getting close to the hour. So, to to ask the same question a bit of a more specific way, what would you say to a youth activist who's concerned about climate? who wants to engage with fossil fuel companies better let's say that they they're, v- they're very sort of suspicious and maybe even a little angry at the companies but they have a genuine desire to help them change what would you say to that person to help them more productively engage like if you could have a maybe ask another way if you could have a ideal in- engagement or ideal conversation with an activist what would what would that look like
2: it would look like it, sitting down and having the conversation around just what the uh, what the actions really are that are required to um, to mitigate climate change, because I believe there's a lot of misinformation out there, and um, I think that and that's what I had hoped would happen with the uh, Ben uh, on the panel he was on. We had a great opportunity to have a real dialogue about what do you think the data is versus. What do the models show? What do the real climate scientists know and understand about it? Uh, so if we could take the biases out and just look at the raw information, work it together, and I would say get in a room, just work it together in a room. And, and the panel sessions where people are, are kind of putting numbers out there uh, without necessarily the validation by a credible agency is not helpful. So, so we have to we have to get to a place where we're all looking at the right information, and I think that's when you have you can have conversations that are a lot more constructive, and then you can move toward getting beyond whether you're right or not about what should or shouldn't be shut down and, and what we actually have to do to address um, climate change, and and, and so. With the right information and 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 making sure that people have the right data, I believe that fundamentally most people want to get to the right solution. And um, there, in a in a lot of people's heads, they think they believe what they've heard, and that is they believe oil and gas needs to go away to to have any chance to mitigate um, climate change and to to hold global warming at two degrees. But but what they don't realize is that if we could offset our emissions, which I believe we can, with the development of of carbon capture from industry and direct air capture, mitigating our emissions is really what the goal should be for all fuel sources. So we need to get to a point where, if it's not already an emission free um, energy source, then how do we offset that that carbon footprint of that energy source? And if we can offset it at a lower cost. Than what other options would um, would cost, then that's what we need to do because the world can't afford uh, to to eliminate fossil fuels anytime in the near future without uh, without make creating worse problems for some people around the world. So so you've got to mitigate the impact of it and um, and phase it down, um, but but that phase down is going to take a lot longer than most people realize. Yes.
0: We have five minutes left. Patrick, you're looking very pensive. I wonder if you have one last question for Vicky before we end the episode. So at a community level, I'd imagine that um,
1: people who are in the oil and gas industry itself, but also in, in the communities that surround them, oftentimes there's a lack of communication with those who are outside of those communities who might look in on those communities that broad number of people um and think well, if you're in a community in a in a, if you work in oil and gas or if you're an oil and gas dependent community, then we we're not going to agree on anything here there's going to be you know our opinions are going to be polarized and we're not going to have anything in common so is there anything that you could say that might challenge that idea that those those within those communities and those outside of the community, those communities would have nothing in common, nothing that they could connect over, or no shared experiences at all.
2: Uh, yeah, I would say again, um, the the youth of today will will change our world, and and will change it in a positive way. Um, first of all, I've been put under pressure by our early career people to improve my quality of life, <laughs> and they've gotten me on that a few times. Um, Asking questions that that caught me off guard, and uh, in re- where I revealed to them that maybe I wasn't spending the quality time I should be spending with my family and my hobbies, but they also are changing the world in that um, they, whether they grow up grow up in Midland, Texas, or they grow up in California, I think that uh, early career or people young people today um, have. Two things that that are believe two things that are that are a lot different than when I was growing up. And one is that that we we should we should have a better quality of life. Work is not our life. Uh, Work is what we do to ensure that our family has a good life. Um, And secondly, um, the climate, we have to protect it. It's our accountability and responsibility to protect the climate for future generations. And it's it's something we absolutely must commit to do. And so I think, uh, while not a hundred percent of the the youth in Mid- Midland, Texas, would say that, but a growing number and a growing percentage in Midland are are believed the same thing that you would find in um, in San Diego, California, or um, San Francisco, California. It's it's it's. I think it's a it's. I think driven by the fact that um, that we haven't done, always done, uh, the things we needed to do for our planet, and we certainly haven't lived the kind of life that that we needed to live. My age, not yours. <laughs> My age, we work. With them. And so, those two things are changing, and and I think it's going to make the world a better place because of it. And, and so, I I think you would find that in the oil and gas communities too.
0: Vicky, we are at time. Thank you so much for sitting down and speaking with us today.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Right, our second last episode. it's hard to believe that our next guest episode is the season finale.
1: Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, isn't it?
0: It seems to have gone really slowly and really quickly at the same time,
1: especially because we're not recording the outros in the order of're releasing the episodes. It makes it seem even more Shh, unbelievable.
0: Patrick <laughs> sh- Don't ruin all of my editing efforts
1: because <laughs> yeah, I know I know uh, oh, you're the worst. yeah. We've recorded all the shows though, right? So it's like we're just recording outros at different times. So we have, this, we have this, this sort of benevolent knowledge, uh,
0: which I like. Fantastic. Now, all our listeners know that we're not as smart and funny and insightful <laughs> as we come across in these outros. So, Actually, you know what? Just for that, I'm going to tell everyone how many ums of yours I have to remove every single episode.
1: A lot from me. I think we, we both know, and perhaps the audience don't know this uh, because you are so, you're so adept at removing them. I have about a five-to-one ratio on you in, in terms of ums. It's like Hugh Grant, you know, circa 1994.
0: Terrible. I'm still not convinced that I'm not going to put out a bonus episode that is just every single one of your ums <laughs> <laughs> that I've cut from the entire season.
1: <laughs> so listen, so Vicky Holub, you know, and fair play to her for coming onto the show. It, mu- it must have been the first, the first conversation Recorded conversations certainly between an, an oil and gas CEO, a psychologist, and a climate scientist. I like. I'd like to think so, anyway. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, you mentioned it at the top of the show. We really gave this some thought, you and I. We went backwards and forwards, and we, you know, we were there were understandable, oh, hesitations. We think actually, if we if we cross that divide on the show. Um, we're going to lose half our audience. People are like, why are these guys brought us an oil and gas CEO onto the show? And we, we really, this was not a decision we took lightly, but... Um,
0: and I'm really glad that we did for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, the premise of this podcast was always to capture the diverse emotional experiences of people who are affected by climate change. And we it would have been an incomplete... Set had we not explored the experience of people working for the fossil fuel industry because they are a substantial group of people that are directly affected by climate change. So just in terms of completion of the series, I think it was important. But I also stand by my opinion, which is that in addition to all of the other avenues of change that people concerned about climate change are pursuing... um, we also need people working inside these larger institutions to help change them if we want to achieve change in the fastest way possible. And trying to drive change from within a large institution means, by definition, having empathy for the people that work there and building relationships with them. Because at the end of the day, you know, companies are just groups of people working together towards a common goal.
1: Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, and... Uh I, I'm very, I'm mindful as well that probably a lot of our listeners would, were sitting there thinking, I, I disagree. I wouldn't have put, you know, I wouldn't have given somebody a platform who was a uh, oil and gas CEO. And I, I completely respect that. Um, I think as well, there's part of what I really, I really did want to hear about. And I'm really glad that we, that we, we got there and that she spoke openly about it was not just from an oil, from a CEO perspective, um, as lonely a position as that is. And that was interesting that she agreed with you, but about the whole you know what does what are the new entrants to the oil and gas workforce like what what are their priorities right because we know generally that the um kind of gen z and new new workforce entrants now are placing such a high priority around the world on on uh, a move towards more sustainable industry you know across the board and um kind of detaching a little bit you know uh, again, the sort of us versus them mentality of saying, well, an oil CEO is the same as someone who's maybe growing up in an oil dependent town who goes with, along with all of their friends and, and school graduates in, into the right, into the refineries, into the oil, you know, the oil industry, et cetera. Um, and really interesting that actually like within that community, like <laughs> I really like that. She said, you know, um, 20 somethings from Midland, Texas would probably agree on a lot of things. to so 20 somethings in San Diego or, or San Francisco, um, have extended family in midland texas and I'm, i know <laughs> i know i know this they're, like, they're kind of i know what you're saying there about that being one of the most conservative parts of, of texas and um that 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 fascinates me and you know i've been doing more projects recently looking at um looking at crossing this divide we're doing something at the moment called climate protectors where we're taking young people and and their parents actually and and doing a bit of kind of um knowledge sharing and it's it's all about how you know how to change parents' hearts and minds? Basically, you just have to get their kids to tell them what to do, and 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 in an impassioned and informed way, and, and that tends to ch- change their mind more than listening to anybody else. Um, it's ba- the model's based on this kind of amazing project called uh, "I Am Your Protector," which was kind of finding ways of bridging these, uh, bridging the get the kind of. Um, these two seemingly diametrically opposed communities where there was a complete tribal mentality and there was seemingly nothing in common, and complete impasses. Um, and just trying to learn from kind of what, um, how to position enemies as 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 kind of, like you said, ally, allies on the same spectrum, you know. Um, and uh, my, yeah, my people who are involved in, in the fossil fuel industry need to have we need to find a way of being able to communicate across the divide. That's just, that's evident, right? We ha- like we have to. Um, I just, I mean, the thing that's screaming in my mind is like, but what about greenwashing? You know, what about right. this <laughs> What about this right, right, kind right. of- um, This is actually, you know,
0: th- this is something I really wanted to talk about. So Vicky said that if there are activists out there who want to try another theory of change with their interactions with oil and gas companies, something based more on partnership Um, or collaboration, that what would be helpful for her would be starting with a discussion around what needs to happen to solve climate change uh, and ensuring that that is fact-based, that everybody can can align on what needs to be done. So based on my knowledge of climate science and economics, I will offer my opinion on how an activist can determine if a fossil fuel company's climate plan is based in fact and is sufficient and in good faith, or whether it's greenwashing. So, the incontrovertible truth at the center of climate policy is that in order to stop warming, we need to reduce our emission of long-lived greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide to zero. Now, there are two ways that this can happen, which from a physics perspective are identical, but from an economics perspective, very different. So the first way is that we convert all of our global technologies that consume fossil fuels through combustion into non-emissive renewable technologies. So replacing power plants with solar farms, replacing fossil fuel cars with electric vehicles, etc. In short, we reduce our consumption of fossil fuels for the purposes of combustion, to zero. The other way that we can achieve the same end is, as Vicky mentioned, capturing the byproducts of combusting fossil fuels either at the point source, in a process known as carbon capture and storage, or CCS, or from the atmosphere, in processes known as carbon dioxide removal, CDR. Now. From a physics perspective, these two things are identical. They get us to the same place. From an economics perspective, very different. The primary reason why they are different is that at present, renewable technologies like electric vehicles and solar farms and wind farms, etc., produce a product which is monetizable, meaning people want to buy electricity and transport, etc., At the moment, there is no real market for carbon dioxide removal. There are very few people outside of some philanthropic efforts who are willing to pay serious money to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And it is unlikely that that is going to be the case unless there is some form of regulation which requires people to do that. So, in my opinion, a good-faith, evidence-based strategy for a fossil fuel company interested in solving or eliminating its contribution to climate change would look like one of two things. Either a stated strategy to reduce production to zero by mid-century 2050 and using the profits of that declining production to transition into another industry. So either renewable energy or hydrogen or producing carbon-neutral fuels, etc., etc. And to be clear, these kind of strategies need to have interim targets so that what you don't have is successive CEOs just kicking the ball the next four or five years in the future and not reducing production at all in the near term. The other feasible strategy would be to ramp up sufficient carbon dioxide removal technology to completely compensate for not only the production of oil, but the eventual consumption downstream. If a company is going to do the latter approach, however, they need to have some route to creating a market that will allow them to monetize carbon dioxide removal. And at the moment, there is not a clear route to do that in a serious way. So I would say if an activist comes to a fossil fuel company and says, what are you going to do about climate change? And that company says, direct air capture and carbon removal. Their response would be, should be, who's going to pay for that? Now, this is something that you can read about in a book called Debt, The First 5,000 Years, if you're interested. But markets are not things that arise spontaneously. Historically, markets have been created by states, or facilitated by states. So, in this case, a good answer to that question might look like we are actively lobbying the state to implement an effective carbon tax which would provide incentives for the economy to purchase carbon dioxide removal to directly offset their emissions. If for some reason, there are people out there who really enjoy the orthodox economics language. We're talking about internalizing a negative externality, a negative market externality, which is an unintended consequence produced by an existing market that is not currently priced by that market. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a longer diatribe, but I, I thought it was important Um But I think that if there are companies or people within companies who are willing to explore these evidence-based, robust strategies for change, we should absolutely be doing everything we can to work with them.
1: Yeah, for sure. There are two things you said this season that really stuck out for me. One is this idea of like, companies aren't things, right? They're just ideas. And they're comprised of people. And people are things. And people have their own Worlds and ideas and beliefs and values that don't necessarily match entirely the the, the ideas of the company, which is a you know is a, is a is a is in a sense a false construct. It's just a collection of people, right? And people are people are, and this leads to the second thing that you said, and I, I I love this. I couldn't agree more. Is that most people, right? Ninety nine point nine nine percent of people are just trying to do what they think is the right thing to do to be a good person, and I I you know I. I see that that day after day after day after day in my job. Um, And um, that's what I hope, you know, conversations like this can just ignite in people.
0: I think, well, first of all, that's my hope as well. Second of all, I think this is a good place to end the episode. We're coming up on the hour mark. Our next episode will be our last, the season finale featuring the former Vice President of the United States, Al Gore, which it's a conversation that we are very excited about and very excited to conclude the guest portion of this season with. And then, as mentioned in previous episodes, we are then going to do two post-finale follow-up episodes that are a little bit longer format, uh, a little bit less formal, one where I interview Patrick, To talk about all of the mental health lessons learned across this season, and one where Patrick interviews me and we do a climate science 101 lesson for people who are interested in that kind of nerdy stuff. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. As always, we are going to end the episode with Broccoli, a song written by totally enormous extinct dinosaurs off of his EP, I Can Hear the Birds.